You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Live. I am the host today, Ed Harrison. I am having I have the pleasure of speaking to Leland Miller, who is the CEO of China Beige Book. Leland, welcome back to Real Vision. Thanks for having me. So uh, I don't know where we start here, Leland, because um, a lot has changed since you and I last talked. We we spoke last on this forum here. Uh, you had a beard at that time. Uh, now <laughs> you're uh, clean shaven. I think that's representative of uh, the sort of changes that we're talking about in the last 11 months. But, you know, before we get into those changes, why don't we just go back and talk about what you do as a company and uh, why we're talking about China as a result? Yeah, so we uh, run the largest, the world's largest private data operation uh, in the world inside the Chinese economy. Uh, we set out uh, over a decade ago to try to be an alternative to official data and what limited other data were out there for the simple reason that we didn't trust that data. And even when you trust the data, and if you're one of those people who trust the data, the problem is, is there's not enough of the data and they don't register weakness. And there's a constant battle to try to figure out what's happening other than stability. So what we try to do is, is do a panoramic view of the entire economy. We were tracking growth, but also the labor market, uh, the credit environment, the inflation uh, environment, and trying to get an idea of not just what was happening in, in China's biggest cities or on its coast, but the big cities, the periphery of China, state companies, private companies across all regions, across all sectors. And that's what we really have been working on doing for the past decade is establishing something that evaluates all of China, honestly, uh, not just the part of China that Beijing may want to advertise at any one given time. Yeah, and you know that last bit about uh, the honest part versus what Beijing advertised. I think that's the 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 most salient point because there's a divergence between those two, which to a certain degree plays out in terms of how the numbers are massaged, what's reflected in terms of uh, how people are thinking about China. So, for instance, when you and I spoke, say October 2019, there was a trajectory. Uh, that you were getting, and there was the trajectory that Beijing was reporting. That changed between October and, and April, and now it's changed yet again between April when we last spoke and today. So I, I want to get a sense from you in terms of that trajectory, both in terms of what actually was happening on the ground from the numbers that you saw in the pre-pandemic period, uh, where China was trying to attempt a, uh, you know, a, a shift of their demand focus to when you and I spoke during the lockdown, the beginning of the lockdown, uh, and also the slight reemergence of China in terms of their economy to today. You know, they're, they're, you know, so we have a trajectory in time, but we also have the differential between what's reported and what you're seeing. 
Yeah, the, the, the amusing thing about what our 2020 data show is that we were actually seeing a lot of the same things that the government was reporting. They were just reporting them at much greater intensity. So look at back at what Chinese data were telling you, the official data were telling you during 2020. Now, they were admitting this was a supply-side recovery. They were admitting that big cities, it was uneven. You know, big cities were doing better than smaller cities. Large firms were doing better than SMEs. Now, we know that's true because we break down our data regionally and by firm size. And we could see that there was a, a recovery going on that looked a lot like what Beijing was talking about, but it was only in the tier one cities. And it was only... Uh, um, amongst large firms. If you look at what SMEs, SMEs weren't borrowing as much, they weren't producing as much, they weren't investing as much. And, and the, 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 the cities outside of you know, the, the big handful of tier one cities were doing much, much worse. You, know, you could see it in the borrowing numbers. You actually looked, and, and the borrowing numbers in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangdong were, were triple what they were in the rest of the country. So there was a recovery that Beijing was talking about throughout 2020, and that was happening. But that wasn't the Chinese recovery. That was a very small subset of China. Uh, the reason people believe that is because, you know, where are foreigners? What are they looking at? They're either looking at official data or they're based in the big cities, and they're looking around them and saying, this is this is plausible. Uh, but the purpose of China Beige Book data is to look at beyond the big cities, beyond the big firms, look at the whole economy. And what we saw was, you know, probably the, the best uh, major uh, economic recovery of a major economy, Taiwan accepted, uh, in the world for the past past year. Uh, so they have done a very good job recovering. You know, the amusing thing about it, though, is that they lied about how intense it was. And if you look at what the numbers were, they started claiming back in Q2 that they had significant year-on-year -year growth. I think the number for Q2 GDP growth was 3.2%. Um, I cannot stress how ludicrous that claim is. Um, for the entire year. Now, we're asking thousands and thousands and thousands of firms what their performance is, what their output is, what their investment is, what are they seeing going into the future? And they were telling us very clearly that they were not back to 2019 numbers. That 2020 was improving month by month, quarter by quarter. There was absolutely a recovery. It looked pretty good, but they weren't seeing year-on-year -year growth. And, you know, the last point on that, people say, well, but, you know, why are you so sure of this? Well, we asked firms, and you know, in the fourth quarter of, of uh, 2020, we asked firms, you know, how far away from normalcy are you? And about two thirds of our firms said that they're about six months away. They were looking at sort of Q2 2021 to getting back to the normalcy of pre-COVID. So the idea that China was growing at 3.2 percent and then 5 percent, you know, for the following quarters, that was a political statement by Beijing. Those weren't real economic numbers. Well, you know, uh, the problem, of course, when you make statements like that. Uh, about growth, then you have to back them up the year that comes. And there's a basing effect there that becomes problematic in terms of the statistics going forward. So while they, you know, they have their narrative for 2020, that narrative necessarily has an impact on the numbers that we're going to see this year to the degree that they have whatever narrative they have this year, because they have to, you know, continue to uh, claim that what they said last year makes sense. So how do you deal with that? I mean, what are you seeing today and how does that play into uh, the the massive growth over estimation that they gave last year? Well, you know, we've spent the last 10 years explaining to people that GDP is a very flawed metric for measuring an economy, whether it's economic progress, whether it's economic reform, 
whether it's even productive growth. Uh, but I think next year, this year, uh, 2021, is going to be even more problematic making sense of GDP growth. So first of all, like you said, they mis politically massaged the numbers in 2020. So we're actually probably in China Beijing going to see stronger growth than official data simply because we have the real numbers and they weren't they weren't seeing year on, uh, on year growth uh, at the end of 2020. They're going to see significant on year growth this year. So whereas they may say 6% or 7% or 8%, we're probably going to see a lot more than that because we're using the real base. Um, now, the other issue here is, you know, if you're evaluating the economy, does GDP matter? Now, I'm not going to go into why GDP measures product, uh, aggregate growth, not productive growth, but just from a purely political standpoint, if you're looking at what China says it wants to do, which is deleverage right now, it has a strong economic recovery. There was a lot of stimulus during COVID. It wants to sort of uh, tighten credit and make sure that the, the, the debt doesn't explode or keep exploding. Um, what do you do? So you're claiming you're going to deleverage. But then you're also claiming you're going to grow like crazy. If you grow like crazy, is that a signal that your deleveraging failed? Did your deleveraging policy fail? But if deleveraging works, does that mean that your GDP policy failed? Well, the way that they explain it, or they'd had like, like you to believe, would be, oh, no, no, we're going to thread the needle. We're going to do this great deleveraging job, and we're going to produce good growth, but not bad growth, and it's going to hit the sweet spot. Well, maybe so, but then don't you sort of have to announce a GDP growth target? And a lot of what we're hearing right now is that they're trying to get away from the GDP growth target because it's causing so many supply side problems where officials think that they, they think they know they have to meet these targets. So it gets very convoluted when you're talking about evaluating how China's doing. They are recovering. But what are they doing in 2021? GDP will be a particularly bad barometer for figuring this out. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. And, you know, when you talk about their uh, political targets, their economic targets, how have those changed over the last uh, year and a half? That is, between when you and I spoke in October of 2019, uh, before the pandemic, and today, when we're speaking, when people are thinking the pandemic will be over soon enough. Well, they, they disavowed the idea of the growth target for the year 2020 because they realized that, you know, having a formal target here was not what they should be worried about. And uh, and so there was not an official target, but there absolutely was an implicit target. And you know what the implicit target is because you could see, you know, back in March, we were having internal discussions saying, OK, here's what the Chinese want the end of year number to be. So here's what the growth has to be on a GDP uh, from GDP perspective every quarter of this year, and that's basically how it played out. Now they juiced Q2 more than we thought, and Q3 less than we thought, but it was basically what we figured because we realized that the way that Beijing looks at the economy is, we are going to set a growth target. We're going to work backwards from that. Um, what's going to happen this year? Well, we're about to we're about to see in the next next few days. You've got the the two conferences, the uh, Lianghui. Uh, where where the the Chinese go into six days of of conferencing and you know figure out all their important budgetary and economic issues supposedly, uh, but I think the problem here is that you would like to see a signal that GDP matters less because GDP quite frankly is not the right barometer for not just for traders and and, econ and economists trying to figure out the Chinese economy but for Beijing's own policymakers they should be going for slower healthier growth so you'd like to see them get away from this GDP target. Uh, but the reality is, if there's not an explicit one, there's always an implicit one, because it's what the party thinks it needs. It, it communicates that down to the provincial officials. So the idea that we're going to take this, this, this wild step away from GDP planning, 
uh, is, is, is unrealistic right now. Uh, but optically, they're trying to change the conversation, if not the underlying uh, um, structure of how they do growth. You know, uh, I think in the past answers, you've mentioned two things that are interesting in terms of going away from aggregates. The one is the difference between growth uh, from a GDP perspective and, and deleveraging. There's a certain tension there. I want to talk about their deleveraging uh, desire. Uh, secondly, I also want to think about the difference between what's happening in the major cities and the hinterland. Uh, you know, the, the the second and third tier cities and how that's going to play out in terms of what's happening on the ground and what they're looking to achieve. So what are what is happening on the ground and what are they looking to achieve both in terms of that dichotomy between uh, major cities and second and third tier cities and also between the implicit growth targets they have and their desire to have more balanced uh, uh, growth going forward? Sure. So. If I had one thing that I could order my fellow China watchers in, in the sell side, the bank research groups to not do, I think the number one thing would be stop acting like GDP growth means anything. Uh, I think number two would be stop pronouncing uh, deleveraging, start, start explaining deleveraging as if it means everything. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you get into, into China's into slowdowns, either in growth in the Chinese economy, credit slowdowns, some sort of signal of credit tightening, you start reading 10,000 headlines about deleveraging, deleveraging this, deleveraging that. Guess what? China did not deleverage from 2016 to 2018. There was slower additional leveraging, sure. During that time, you also saw a shadow banking crackdown. So in our data, we were seeing uh, slower additional leveraging reflect in our data. We were seeing shadow banking as a share of overall uh, overall borrowing uh, going down. So we were seeing important reform aspects that have to do with credit. None of this was deleveraging. None of it was deleveraging. So the first thing to do is, is, is never assume that just because you're seeing credit tightening, it doesn't necessarily mean deleveraging. Um, what's interesting, though, is we are seeing tentative evidence of deleveraging in our early 2021 data. So, you know, we are now putting out data on a monthly basis. It used to be quarterly, then it was eight times a year, and now it's monthly. Uh, and then we're reporting weekly. Now we're putting daily data during our survey periods. And it's and so we have good data in January and February, even those are even those are difficult months uh, because of Chinese New Year. And it's interesting. I mean, we're really seeing some evidence of, of, of potential deleveraging, a potential policy push for this to happen. You're seeing large firms uh, uh, borrowing a lot less. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next several months, because you know what happens in January, February has to be taken with a grain of salt. What, what happens over any one or two month period has to be taken with a grain of salt. You should be seeing this happen over three or four or five or six months. Uh, but we are seeing some evidence of this. But again, if there is a deleveraging movement that actually starts real momentum, where we're seeing credit tightening lead to healthier, uh, you know, a reversal of growth of non-performing loans, for instance, um, it's going to affect growth. And it's also going to affect uh, outsiders looking at the investment uh, opportunities in China getting a little more scared. You're going to see more defaults. So the question always is, is not whether China is doing this. They do this all the time, but they just really, they, they see a default, they see something else scary, they think that their growth targets aren't going to be met, uh, and they just sort of ease off the gas pedal and reverse it. So it's a stop, start, stop, start. 
you know, we can see this stop start in our data. We're just hoping this time around, you're gonna see a lot more of that deleveraging uh, early in the year that we, that we saw uh, in January, February. And what about that dichotomy that you mentioned between what's happening in the Shanghai's, uh, uh, the Beijing's of the world, and what's happening in second and third tier cities? Yeah, I, I think you cannot have a serious view of China's economy without understanding and, and being able to see in real time how different things are in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong versus the rest of the country. Now, it's not always those three versus the rest, but I, what you're seeing for the past year has been much more activity. Uh, now, we're seeing a catch-up in our latest data. You know, we're, we're going to have quarterly data out in a few weeks, and, and we're going to have, you know, so, so the, 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 the data are getting more healthy. But what we've been seeing for a long time now is that if you were a privileged firm in a big city, and that usually meant a large firm, then you were getting access to capital. You felt better about the future. You were investing more. You were producing more. Uh, you were hiring more. You just felt more secure. Now, keep in mind, this is not just the China thing. You're seeing the same thing happen in the United States and other places. Uh, but it's very interesting because you don't have this discussion about in, in China as much. You know, what are what are the plight of SME, SMEs, small, medium-sized enterprises? Our SME data over the past year, up until the last two months, has been really pretty atrocious. Uh, firms did not want to borrow. Uh, they were not investing. So yes, you see these aggregate numbers. It ignored what was happening with with the the vast majority of the economy, which was small and medium sized enterprises. So enormous differences between the recovery of large firms and smaller firms, and enormous difference up until the last two months in terms of the recovery for you know uh, periphery regions versus uh, the coastal regions. If China now you know I was saying how hard it is to get a barometer for 2021. Here's a barometer that we're going to be looking at. You want to see the recovery even out. So you want to see the large firms, maybe the small firms catching up to the large firms. You want to see the periphery regions catching up to the coastal regions. Uh, you want to see retail, which has been uh, not doing that well in services because of co coronavirus. Uh, you want to see that catching up to the industry side of the economy, manufacturing and property and others. We're seeing evidence of that so far in our Q1 data. Uh, but that's what we want to see for 2021. We don't care what the GDP number is. And if you do care, you better have a good reason why you care, because it's 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 almost meaningless in 2021. Right. You know, uh, as you were saying that, and you were talking about SMEs versus large companies, I immediately thought about state-owned enterprises versus the private sector. Is there any dichotomy happening there, both in terms of you know credit? Uh, and growth. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, their desire to get credit, the credit that's due to them from the financial sector, uh, and also the growth uh, of revenues in, in those uh, those enterprises. Yeah, there absolutely is a difference. Um, I probably should have grouped it with 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 you know small medium sized uh, with with SMEs versus large firms and and the and the, the coastal the differentiation and the firm size differentiation. Uh, the reason it's a little bit different is that. Very bizarre data coming out. I mean, bizarre. It was interesting data coming out throughout the last year, in which it wasn't just state firms that were getting all the support. You were actually seeing a bounce back effect. So at the very beginning, state firms were 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 more optimistic, simply because they said, "Hey, we're we don't have to do anything. We're still going to get our capital. We, we there's no there's no real uh, there's no real restrictions on and or, or expectations on us. We're just we're going to continue to survive so we can keep people employed. So I think state firms uh, did better earlier. But when you started looking back and forth at this, when private firms were were flagging their performance were flagging or they were borrowing less, then you, the next quarter you actually saw it flip. So 
the 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 government did a pretty good job in trying to target both, and particularly private firms when they saw state firms doing better. And you know, uh, the early again early in Q1 right now, but our we have some interest rate data, very interesting for 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 Q1 uh, that might suggest that 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 private firms are actually doing better now and 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 are having easier conditions, and that's that's of course aided by the government. Um, but a little too a few weeks early on that, so we'll we'll see in a few weeks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, before I flip to the whole um, global context of China, I want to just uh, get your sense on any, if you have any forward-looking views. I mean, you're obviously a data analyst. Do you, based upon the data that you're seeing now in the early 2021 and that you've seen in 2020, have any thoughts about what the rest of the year could look like? Well, I think what we're going to see is, is basically, there's a lot of things that could change. Nothing's linear. But, you know, for the beginning of the year, at least, the market just loves China right now. I mean, they did the recovery better than anybody else. They've got high growth rates. The yields are higher. There's an expectation the currency is going to appreciate. So money is just flowing in to China right now. Um, are people asking the tough questions? Not really. I mean, I don't know if anybody ever asked the tough questions on China, but especially right now they're not, simply because they're saying, okay, we know there are warts. We know there's debt. We know there's all kinds of reasons why you should, we should be hesitant about uh, you know, putting more money into China. But hey, we have to diversify and look at how bad the rest of the world is right now. So China has this really good opportunity to 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 just uh, to make some big structural changes um, to stabilize to 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 sort of accept slower, healthier growth without a microscope being on it this year, simply because people aren't going to be able to make heads or tails out of the growth data. They should be comparing it to 2019 data, not to 2020, if they're doing on-year data. Uh, and and I, so, so, so I think that unless things uh, get hairy, because deleveraging causes uh, a series of defaults that scares the markets, China's going to have a little bit less pressure, at least the first half of the year. Uh, the, what will they do with it? Well, they've never taken advantage of this in the past, so I don't have uh, that much optimism. But there is a beautiful window that if Beijing policymakers wanted to change the directory and come out into 2022 and accept slower, healthier growth and a more deleveraged overall economy that just continues to, 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 to be less reliant on this, on this bubblicious growth, uh, it could do that. Uh, but again, there, there's, there's no signs of that. You, you know, uh, when you say that, and you're pointing to the microscope uh, not being on them in the way that it was before, I think of the microscope now uh, being on the political side. Uh, and so I think this is a good trans uh, way to shift over to thinking about the global content. So, you know, in particular, what I'm thinking is that the Trump administration was very much focused on China as an enemy of the United States. Where will the Biden administration go on that issue in particular? Well, I think that the most important thing to understand about the Biden administration, and what I'm going to say uh, at first is, is, is not terribly uh, insightful, is that the Biden administration is, is focused on COVID right now, COVID vaccination, COVID economic recovery, and doesn't want to be dealing with China or really anything else to distract it 
until it gets past uh, you know a, a certain period of uh, of uh, uh, the first half of the year. Uh, at the same time, uh, Biden has a very long track record of being weak on China, and the political uh, environment right now in the United States is is the only thing people can agree on is go tough on China, go tough on China. So there's a real vulnerability there if Biden concedes things, is too uh, opens his arms to China too much. And so the combination of the fact that they don't want the distraction, and they also don't want to uh, use political chits on helping China when they've got so many other big picture things they want to do right now, means that they're more or less right now accepting the Trump policy as their own. Now, of course, you know, you'll hear alliances and unity and, and, and all that kind of stuff, the, the, the buzzwords. They're going to do it with our friends, not, not, not against our friends. And that, fair enough. But keep in mind that, that bringing— uh, that, that, you know, having a joint China policy with their allies, that, that's a process. That's not a strategy. So right now what we're seeing is just sort of a continuance while every policy under the sun is under review, and then those reviews are under review, and then those reviews are under review, review, review. Um, we're just going to see this policy kick out for a while. Uh, and and uh, and I think it's for the, for the reasons they don't want to use political chits, and they also don't want to uh, distract from priority number one, which is, of course, COVID. Priority number one through 10, which is all COVID. When we get into, uh, you know, uh, sort of the post-COVID geopolitical environment, this is going to get a lot more interesting because the, the Biden team doesn't want to just take everything Trump does. They're going to want to put their own stamp uh, on, on different policies. And they're going to have to do it while not signaling that they're weaker than Trump. They're going to have to do it different and, and in their mind, smarter. So, for the for the for the for the short term, we're going to see very few changes. But I think once we get into the next, you know, next year, end of this year, I think we can start seeing where the where the policy is really going to break out. Right, and you know what you're saying makes sense of what happened with regard to Mohammed bin Salman in uh, with the Biden administration. I mean, if you look at what you're saying, basically they're punting on uh, difficult decisions on a foreign policy perspective until the whole COVID crisis calms down. You know, people are talking about the uh, mutant virus variants and dealing with that, getting the full vaccination going. Uh, Biden is talking about, or Fauci at a minimum, uh, May, uh, where uh, the majority of people are vaccinated. Those, you know, maybe by the middle of this year, will get to a point where they can start to focus on, on, on other things. And then the question will be, you know, what kind of policy do they do there? But what, in terms of this whole uh, kumbaya of, uh, of multilateralism, what do you think happens with regard to the Europeans in that mix? Well, I mean, look, we talk about process. There's going to be a lot of process. So, you know, we're going to rope the Europeans and, and other allies, you know, the Quad is the, with Japan and India and Australia. Is, and we're going to be using a lot of multilateral forum to talk about forming consensus about China rather than sort of dictating the U.S. way. Now, hopefully the U.S. way is the same way as the European way. And this is a lot easier uh, uh, than we think. But I think a lot of this is going to be bent around not necessarily changes in strategy, but changes in process. And that's that's going to be a big uh, that's going to be what the Biden team sells you as their big differentiator. Uh, now, this could go a couple different ways. I mean, you're going to have different pressures on the Biden team as we go along. Um, let's say we're, we're past COVID. What happens in 2022? We've got the we've got the Olympics coming up uh, pretty quickly. Uh, there is a lot of pushback on both sides of the aisle uh, on attending versus boycotting 
the Olympics. This is something that's on the right and the left. This is something that's across Europe. Uh, Biden is going to start feeling a lot more pressure to call out China, to react in some way. Uh, so this issue will be shoved in, in, into, his, uh, into his chest sooner rather than later, uh, you know, when we're talking second half of this year, probably. So there will be an issue there that's going to be very important. The other thing that happens in, is 2022, you know, we're going to be having midterms before we know it. And we have midterms. The, the easiest way that Biden could get wiped out is by is having the Republicans run not on particular policy, but just on Biden or the Democrats being weak on China. I mean, that'll that'll resonate with with voters uh, across the spectrum. We've seen that. So um, you're going to have to toughen policy up next year simply because uh, political considerations, Olympic considerations. And, and then there's going to be some big decisions to be made. Uh, and, and, and I don't think they've made them yet. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting when you say that. I, I, I want to go to the economic side of this, uh, you know, China-U.S. thing. But it is interesting because midterms, in the, 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 fir the first term, midterms, have, generally speaking, I think except maybe in two cases in the last hundred years, been times when the incumbent party, the president's party, has lost—they've uh, lost seats in the House and, and the Senate. And so, you know, for Biden, he wants to be one of those presidents who bucks that trend. But the trend, generally speaking, uh, isn't in his favor. And then, you know, from a foreign policy perspective, with a China perspective, how much do you think that plays into uh, his vulnerabilities uh, in terms of Congress, where there's a very thin majority on both sides? Right. Well, look, almost nobody, like you said, almost nobody does well. Uh, at the midterms af after your first two years. Uh, and there's additional reasons that are going to be disadvantageous to the Democrats because of uh, uh, redist redistricting. So if you put all that together, even if Biden does a pretty good job, the odds are that he is going to face a very uphill battle uh, to, maintain, uh, to, to, to maintain the House, for one, uh, going forward. And so I, I think that the viewpoint of the administration right now is we're going to get everything big out of the way up front. So we are going to focus. We're going to get this COVID relief package back. Uh, it was very clear to us from the very beginning that they were the Democrats are going to go big on this and use reconciliation uh, because they have to go. They have to go big early on. They've got they've got a year and a half to really go big on policy. Most basically just a year. And then next, you're going to have this Build Back Better program, and they're going to try to shove everything under the sun under that uh, for the for the main political reason that. When the midterms come around, Biden's going to want to say, look, the economy's better. It's better because I handled COVID better than the Republicans did. And also, no, it wasn't those tax cuts that Trump did way back then. It's the fiscal stimulus I'm doing now. Look at how big it is. So they're going to want to really set the marker down with big, uh, big, proactive, aggressive legislative action in 2021. Now, once that's done, you may not see any more big legislative action for years and years and years. And that's when you start thinking about, okay, so what are we going to do with Iran? What are we going to do with North Korea? The foreign policy issues come back into the fold. And then that's where China has an opening. Uh, you know, it's so, so then all of a sudden China becomes relevant again. Right now, there's sort of a distant afterthought, even though the U.S.-China rivalry is as important as it is. Yeah, uh, good points. Now, let, let's turn to the, the trade aspect of uh, China. Um, the question is, in this COVID world, and also in the post-COVID world that we'll see, hopefully fairly soon, how much does trade matter in terms of global growth and also in terms of general welfare, economic welfare, for China 
and also for uh, Western countries, and in particular also for those countries that are leveraged to China, like, as an example, Australia? Well, look, I, I, I think the last four years has featured much more emphasis on trade than, than, than should be justified. I mean, we, we focused on trade because President Trump was, was obsessed with, with trade, with tariffs, with the bilateral trade deficit with China, which is, which is nonsense, uh, economically speaking. Uh, so I, I, there's, been a, there's been a lot of focus on it. Of course, we ended up with the phase one deal. Uh, the Democrats aren't going to walk away from that. They've signaled they're not going to walk away from that. If, if they do away with some of the tariffs over time, they want something in return. I think that's a good strategy, even though I was, you know, very publicly dismissive of the phase one deal from the very beginning. Um, but I think I think when you look at what's happening with trade, it's it's oversold as being important. I think that if you let's say you rip the tariffs back, you, you adjusted them, is that really going to you'll you'll help China at the margins? You may affect uh, the U.S. economy very, very lightly at the margins, but these are not things that are going to dramatically change uh, the trajectory of the U.S. economy or even the Chinese economy. The things that will is when you start branching into into uh, uh, what, what's, what's under the broad banner of decoupling, whether it's dealing with financial flows, whether it's dealing with supply chain issues. I mean, they, that's the big issue right there. Uh, supply chain issues, technological decoupling. You know, where, how, what are we doing with 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 Chinese 5G? Um, I think this is these are the most important issues to watch. We've we've been over focused on trade for a long time. So yeah, you don't see that as uh, where the the the, um, the big focus is. Now, what about for those countries that have more uh, trade with China, or that trade is a larger percentage of their GDP growth? Like as an example, I've mentioned uh, Australia, but Germany comes into play for me just because. You know, in the post-housing uh, crisis world, they pivoted to China in order to uh, get away from what was happening in Europe, and they did so successfully. Yeah, well, look, like anything else, there's winners and losers in, in, in the policy as it evolves right now. So if we're cracking down on China and we're cracking down, let's say, transshipment of commodities from China to third-party countries to, to, to come in us, and we're cracking down on that, it's, it's, it's going to cause some losers. Uh, if, if, com if countries are big uh, trading partners with China and we crack down on uh, things on export controls, if we, tra if we crack down on—, on, on on, uh, on, on other aspects of what we allow to be exported to China, and that can affect them. On the other hand, if, if, we're, if we're doing some degree of decoupling, we're, we're, we're pulling some supply chains out of China, then there's going to be opportunities for other countries. So, you know, when you look at what's happening in Southeast Asia, uh, they're going to have some inconveniences and they're going to have a whole lot of opportunities. And it's just understanding that the world's changing right now and we're going to have a different uh, set of circumstances going forward than we've had in the past. Um, I don't think that this is this is you know it's crushing or not. A, a, a country like Germany is going to have to understand that that uh, that there is a national security balance with the economic balance, um, and the United States is going to have to put its finger on the scale if it thinks something like Huawei restrictions are important and say, look, you're our ally. This is what we expect of you. And in return, maybe we don't threaten you with auto tariffs every two weeks. But in any case, whatever the trade-off might be. It's not going to be easy to just grab the Europeans on our side. There's no united front on every issue. You know, Europeans are going to be united on a national security issues, and they're going to be at odds with the United States on a lot of economic issues and trade issues. So, 
it's not going to be easy to negotiate all these issues. It's why it's very important we get a China strategy that has very strict priorities, and we focus on those priorities, and then maybe not, maybe maybe focus at top of that pyramid instead of the bottom. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, uh, when you mentioned Huawei, it comes back to what you were saying about the, the issues that matter you know, technology, uh, supply chain issues. Let's use that as an example. Where is that now, and where do you think it could be likely to go under the Biden administration? I think I think Huawei is a lot less uh, interesting uh, topic than most people think for the simple reason that Huawei has become a household name. So, if, you know, if you watch that back and forth between senators, uh, Ted, Ted Cruz and, mother, and, 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 uh, and, and the new Commerce Secretary about whether Huawei is going to go on the entity list, this is political theater. Huawei is not being taken off the entity list. It would kill Biden in terms from political, uh, politically speaking. Uh, it's just too big a name. So Huawei is not going off the list. What's interesting is that the Biden administration will have the ability, because the Trump administration tried to throw all the pasta against the wall, to try to make tweaks to this system. And they can either be very smart tweaks to make this a much more effective crackdown on Chinese tech, or they can play with the various lists and take subsidiaries off and affiliates off and and and, and, and companies like uh, SMIC, which is China's China's found, core found, uh, chips foundry, uh, and, and take those off and make it a much more dovish policy. So what I what I think is interesting is that for all the focus on Huawei, Huawei is now a political issue in and of its own. So the Biden administration is going to have very little leeway on how to operate with Huawei. But the, com com the companies, the important tech companies under Huawei, those are not known to the average Joe on the street. They're not even known to the average China watcher. So they, they will have a lot of ability to make these lists more hard-hitting, these restrictions and export controls more hard-hitting, or to go the other direction, which is why I think some of the officials that are going to be appointed in the next couple of months in the Commerce Department, these are really important positions in terms of understanding where China policy is going over the next two years. Yeah, you know, um, so Leland, we are, I think we're uh, almost at the 40-minute mark, and I was telling you before that I want to save some time for questions at the end, and this is a good opportunity for me to uh, tell people to get your questions in if you want to ask Leland more on issues that weren't covered. And speaking of issues that weren't covered, uh, Taiwan's one of them. Let's not talk about that yet, because I do see at <laughs> least one question that's on Taiwan. I, I want to ask you, Leland, is there anything that we've missed that's really on your radar screen that Real Vision viewers should be thinking about? Well, I hope we do get a chance to talk about Taiwan from the policy angle. Um, so that'll—I think that's—that uh, needs to be covered in the next uh, in the next 20 minutes. Um, you know, I—, I Every time I come on Real Vision, I have a different story to tell, but there's some there's some just precepts that are just really important to throw out there. And, and, and there are things that Real Vision um, uh, members are much more attuned to than, than the average person in the financial system, which is, look, you know, we have been looking at the Chinese economy from a skewed standpoint for a long time, simply because we said we couldn't do better. We, could, we couldn't look at the economy. Whatever they said, we have no way of checking their work. Uh, let's just call it directionally correct and let's move on. But I think it's really important right now to hold 
China's feet to the fire on producing better data. Uh, not just looking at private data like ours, but just understanding that a lot of the stuff they're putting out is just it is substantively meaningless. Uh, it doesn't come out enough. There's not enough regional data. There's not enough sectoral data. Uh, and, and better understanding the data will be important. I think in this day and age, you know, we've we've sort of digressed into just taking numbers and throwing them into algorithms, and then having something give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I think it's very dangerous. And and one one way we saw that so vividly during the coronavirus pandemic is seeing very supposedly knowledgeable China experts wave around the PMI numbers, comparing them on year. Uh, and, and in ways that the PMIs don't work. The, the PMI is, is a reflection off the month before. And to hear people talk about, well, this PMI is the highest in two years, meaningless, meaningless. So what would be better, what I hope people from Real Vision take away from this is, it's really important to understand the data that are out there and to continually demand better data. Because what we're being told by the largest institutions right now is the story they want to tell. And why do these institutions mostly banks, but there's you got private equity firms, everyone else. Why are they telling this bullish story? Why are they not challenging China's stability? One simple reason. They want to get into China, and they can't tell a negative story if they want to get into China. So it's it's. I find these talks invigorating because it gives us a chance to talk about what's actually happening, not what Goldman's saying in order to get into the Chinese economy and get securities ventures approved, not what some private equity firm is saying. We need to get away from these guys who have a vested interest in Chinese economic data, don't let them tell the story of Chinese economic data if they have to say a rosy story in order to get business in the mainland. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really important point. And you know, by the way, I, uh, when I was looking at our talk in April, we talked about that, specifically the PMIs. You know, that the a PMI of 29 moving up to 51 isn't one that tells you that you're back to, to square one, even using China's own State right. data, right. Right, yeah. My colleague Shazad Kazi has written a couple of pieces in Barron's. If you have a subscription to that, Google Shazad Kazi, China Beige Book Barron's. He, he has a, a number of, of pieces he's written just about understanding the data, understanding the PMI, what these numbers say and what they don't say. Because I can tell you, even amongst China experts, people don't understand this. Right. Now, uh, let's say into Taiwan uh, via a different route. Um, I, I want to do it via Hong Kong. I want to talk about um, I want to talk about uh, Taiwan in a second. But another place that we've left out in this whole discussion is Hong Kong. What's happening there, and whether it matters in terms of from a geostrategic or even an economic perspective? I think there are two issues in particular. One is the human rights and where China's going issue. And the other is Hong Kong as a vehicle for the intersection of China and the West. What are you, what are you seeing on both of those levels? Well, look, Hong Kong is a sad issue to deal with because, uh, yes, it matters. Um, yes, it has geopolitical importance. Uh, no, there's nothing that we can obviously do to reverse what's happening. Uh, and there's a really open question to what we can even do at the margins to support Hong Kong people. Um, and so it's a very difficult subject. You know, there was a lot of big words in the last administration on how we were going to crack down on Hong Kong, and then there's a lot of walking away from it because uh, 
both for, for bad reasons, but also good reasons. I mean, if you're talking about cracking down on Hong Kong, you got to make sure that whatever you're doing is not hurting the people you're trying to help as well. So the, the bargain that Beijing has clearly made is that they are going to put Hong Kong under their control, damn the consequences. Uh, they think that they saw what was happening in the legislative councils anti-Beijing push. They had to nip that in the bud. That's why the national security law went into play when it did. And once this started, they were never going to allow it to be pulled back. So it was just a matter of how, how big a crackdown they needed in order to exert full control. Uh, and I think from a, from a financial center uh, perspective, uh, everything they're doing right now is, has either the intention or the secondary consequence of, of turning Hong Kong into a secondary financial center. Uh, I think many in, many in the Chinese leadership are perfectly comfortable having those uh, centers in, in in the mainland, turning you know Shanghai, Shanghai and and, and Shenzhen and, and some of these other places, um, they they prefer commerce moving there, and 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 so um, it's it's just a very it's it's so dramatic what's happening in Hong Kong right now. It's somewhat taken over. People's focus have been taken over by COVID because of this, but really the the, the Hong Kong that 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 we've all visited or lived at, uh, it's gone and. Uh, what we're seeing right now is sort of a, you know, sort of a, a Beijing shell of what it was, and I think that's the direction they're moving. Yeah, uh, it, it does seem that that's the case, and you know, so I think that it uh, it definitely begs the question about uh, Taiwan in particular, because in some people see that as the red line. We actually even had a question about this uh, from the audience. Uh, this is from Baham E, and he asked, "Do you see a conflict in Taiwan with China affecting the market?" Even before you answer that question, first of all, do you think that a conflict is likely, and what kind of conflict would it be were it to happen? Yeah. Uh, conflict's a broad term. So if we're talking about a kinetic conflict, um, I, I don't think it's likely. Uh, it's a heck of a lot more likely than it was a couple years ago um, for, 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 for some, some big reasons. But no, I don't think it's likely. Um, it would be, for all the popular sentiment that that Beijing could could muster for this and the ability to to cause some real pain in the Taiwanese economy, this would be it should be a pretty dramatic step for them to do right now. And the game plan has always been just wait. We're just going to wait this out, and we're going to become stronger, and the United States will become relatively weaker, and Taiwan will you know be folded in without much complaint. And 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 while that may not be panning out the way they had hoped, um, I, you know I I don't think that the Beijing leadership is in any rush to fight over Taiwan right now. Uh, that said, the risks are exponentially higher than they were a couple years ago. Uh, and there's really two big issues here. And, and they're connected, but, but they're too often conflated. The first is what U.S diplomatic relations are with Taiwan. So right now, you know, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, the State Department, uh, the administration uh, writ large, um, Changed the rules, and so there was there was sort of open con there weren't restrictions on contact with Taiwanese officials, which have sort of hamstrung the ability for U.S. and Taiwanese officials to work together for a long time. Uh, the the Biden administration in its early uh, in its early uh, talks, you know, Secretary Blinken, for instance, has said they're going to adopt that. They're not going to be beholden to any old rules here. There's going to be much closer diplomatic relations, and of course, depending on who they send over to Taiwan and who in Taiwan comes over here, that's going to really irritate the Chinese and get them the nervous. Uh, the second part of the Taiwan issue is has to do with semiconductors. Uh, I actually think it's it's much less known but it's it's much more important. And Taiwan Semiconductor uh, TSMC is probably the most important company in the entire world right now. 
what it can do with advanced semiconductor chips, uh, nobody else can do. Very few others are even close. And so what, what, what Commerce restrictions, Department of Commerce restrictions over the last couple of years have done is made it increasingly difficult for Chinese companies to get these chips. So Huawei's banned other Chinese uh, tech firms are, are, are and, and uh, uh, Chinese tech firms are banned from getting these advanced chips. Uh, it's 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 stopping them from doing a lot of the things they wanted to do with 5G and 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 other advanced technology. So you've got this issue with the United States sort of ring fencing Taiwanese technology. In addition, you're bringing there's an agreement right now to bring a TSMC factory to the United States and to start producing these advanced chips, not the most advanced chips, but very advanced chips, you know, in the United States by 2024. Um, that is a part of a plan to continually integrate Taiwan more and more into U.S. supply chains, but particularly U.S. defense and advanced technology supply chains. So this is a big move. Now, you talk about conflict with Taiwan. One thing the Chinese could opt to do is they could grab a TSMC factory, because there are those in China, and they could nationalize it. They say, enough is enough. We're going to take all this stuff. Now, it would be counterproductive. It's not like the Chinese could walk in there, put their own workers in there, and produce this stuff. This is mind-blowingly advanced technology. Um, uh, however, um, when you talk about conflict, it's not just about the Chinese blockading the island or shutting down trade or sending a few missiles to take out to an airfield. A lot of it has to do with, with what the secondary consequences are of this tech decoupling and this closer ties of Taiwan and the United States on the tech side and how vulnerable Beijing thinks it is to the next five years of not having this technology. Yeah, that is a very good point. I mean, the concept of uh, creating an intertwined U.S.-Taiwanese technology sector, uh, what does Beijing think about that, and how positive is that for, from a foreign policy perspective for the United States? Oh, well, they hate it. I mean, there's almost nothing that scares them more than that. That's a lot worse than, than say, sending an undersecretary of state uh, over to Taiwan to go to some ceremony with Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, so this, they, they absolutely hate it. Uh, and so the question here, is it a good idea? Sure, it sounds like a good idea. Like I, I, I think that the, these are all things that have a lot of justification behind them. Uh, the question that policymakers have to be asking themselves, however, is that this changes everything in the dynamic between the U.S., China, and Taiwan. And as we tighten our relationship with them diplomatically, but particularly on the economic side and the trade side, are we willing to go the extra mile to protect that relationship? So we've done very well for decades on this sort of ambiguity over whether we would come to Taiwan's aid and attack. There's the Taiwan Defense Act. Most people understand what we would do. We would go to Taiwan's aid. But it's not set in stone. And, you know, there were a lot of questions under Trump whether he or another president would actually carry forth that defense if, if, if they So there's a lot of ambiguity. This strategic ambiguity has served us well in the past when the United States was far more important than China, particularly in the region. Uh, it's not anymore. And as, as the dynamics between the U.S. and China, the U.S. and Taiwan change, there is a need to solidify or at least clarify the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan, or we could end up in a very bad situation where the Chinese think that something's not going to happen, but American policymakers think it's going to happen, and you want to you want to get into a war without meaning to it. It's more likely something like that happens rather than you know two ships colliding. Right. Now uh, let me go on to some other issues that uh, some of our um, some of our listeners are thinking about. 
this is actually from Peter Bookvar, who uh, comes on our platform uh, very often. And he's asking, hey, Leland, how do you see China dealing with its long-term population growth issue? Uh, start allowing families to have three kids, pay families to have more. He says thanks in advance. Yeah, Peter's an old friend. Uh, and a great question. Uh, they're doomed. They're doomed. So, uh, it, look, they're, they're not totally doomed, but there's very little they can do to change a trajectory right now. I mean, you're going to see one of the big topics for the, 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 the Lianghui this week is going to be whether you open up more birth pol pro-birth policies. You know, it, 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 can, can China get back together to being, a, you know, a, a growing nation? The, there are things they can do at the margins, but they're going to have a very difficult problem. One, because they are an old society that's stuck at— uh, at at, uh, at 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 not poor levels, but relatively mediocre income levels. You know, when when, when everyone else, when, when Japan, you look at what happened in Japan and Taiwan. By the time that they were started to get older, they were already at very high income levels. China's stuck at a very low income level with a very old population, so they're in a lot of trouble because there's nothing they can do about this in the next 20 or 30 years. And the time bomb could hit far before that, based on the numbers. Now, the second thing is, of course, they have too many men and too few women. And so you have those imbalances as well, and that can cause all kinds of societal problems, whether it's shoving more uh, men, all the extra men who are married into the military and building up your military, whether it's you know Chinese rolling down into Southeast Asia and grabbing uh, brides from other countries and creating problems that way. There's all kinds of negative consequences from that. Um, so I, I think that there is no answer. And the question is, how can they moderate the problem that will be caused by the set of circumstances right now? That there's no way to fix it. And, and what about the inflationary or deflationary uh, uh, outcome as a result of that? Because the demographics, they, they seem like they have some deflationary uh, trends to them. And the question is, is, you know, in a world that's reflating right now, is China likely to export deflation or inflation uh, to the rest of the, the the world? Well, historically, it's always been deflation. We've had 20 years of, you know, goods deflation exported to the rest of the world. And and this this brings us to the broader conversation about inflation. Now, I ask, I get asked all the time, I think probably most people who are watching get asked all the time, do you think, are you looking for the next few years to for an inflation surprise or a deflation surprise? Which way are we heading? And the answer is yes. I mean both. I mean, one of the, I think one of the one of the one of the more problematic narratives we have right now is acting like inflation is a monolithic uh, metric. It's a monolithic creature. So, are things going up or are they going down? Well, coming out of China, you have, like I said, decades of significant uh, consumer goods deflation. Uh, and you've had goods deflation uh, all over the place for, 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 for years. So you have this huge deflationary wave coming out of China and elsewhere. On the other hand, you have substantial uh, inflation, stuff Peter Bookvar talks a lot about. You have substantial inflation in things like uh, asset prices and, 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 and home prices and others. So you've got big inflation battling big deflation, and they're sort of hitting together. And at the end of the day, we, we, we pick a number. We pick a, a CPI, we pick a PCE number. And so we get this one number and say inflation's under control. But actually, there's two tigers that are wrestling right there, doing very different things, and it's causing different sets of problems. So I, I think the major issue here is not that we're going to go one way or the other, although we very likely could. It's not understanding that you've got two different dynamics that don't equal out into one balanced inflation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
Um, let us uh, finish this off here. I, we're hitting about the uh, the hour mark uh, with one last question uh, for you. And this is the question is is uh, what do you expect out of the party meeting this month? Uh, I get in a, I get in a lot of trouble with my China watching friends because this is where they write their big you know uh, report for the you know one or two times a year and here's what to expect. I don't think anything's coming out of this thing. Look, what do we expect? They're going to say they're going to spur a lot of consumption. How are they going to spur consumption? Tell me how the Chinese are going to suddenly spur consumption. Is it because they're going to transfer a bunch of state assets to private hands? No, they've been doing the opposite. Are they going to strengthen the currency dramatically? Maybe at the margins, but they're not necessarily going to transfer that purchasing power into the, in, into, in the pockets of households. And then are they going to suddenly just create this massive social, safe, social welfare net? No, they're working in that direction. But in order to talk about shifting, from a, an environment of investment to consumption, you need to actually structurally change your economy. And which of these options or what options are they enacting on? What are they, what are they doing that would move us from the current structure of the economy to something that's more incentivizing uh, of a shift to consumption? I don't see it. So like a lot of things that are going to happen this week, um, I think it's a lot of talk. Uh, and, and a lot less action. I, I do think you, you, you should pay attention to um, and, and a lot more people are paying attention to now is the tech reliance. There's, there's a panic going on in Beijing about technological reliance on the West to the United States. This ties directly to what we talked about in Taiwan Semiconductor. It talks a lot about U.S. export controls, uh, which are uh, not yet there, but are being um, hopefully being worked on, uh, uh, decoupling supply chains. The Chinese have talked about self-reliance for decades, but for the first time, there is a true panic in the leadership that if they do not do things to spur their own path, then you're going to have a very serious potential bottleneck for Chinese growth and power projection going forward. And so I think that the, the implication of this, because I think this is really one of the very few things that are going to be important coming out of this Congress, or coming out of the uh, Lianghui, um, is that when you're talking about um, uh, the development of, uh, of the uh, how should I say this? Well, when you're talking about the 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 way that the um, uh, I, let, let me go in another direction. I've already lost my train of thought. The the, the the important point about this is is that when you're talking about technical technological reliance, this is something they're very they're very worried about. When they're talking about spring consumption. These are things that are that are actually being um, uh, being talked about over and over. The words are there, but the action's not there. So anytime you see a projection uh, on, on what the Chinese are going to do next from a policy angle, see what they're doing from the action angle behind it. And I think that's the most important takeaway. See what they're actually doing, not what they're saying. Right. You know, I, I lied to you, by the way. I, I'm not going to uh, end there. I'm going to end with another question. Uh, and, uh, and, and this one, yeah, I mean, you talked about the difference between what they're saying and they're doing. So this question, I think, uh, from the audience, is very much on point there from Mark Bannister. He says that given no one has unlocked the elixir of deleveraging and sustained fast growth, what happens both economically, but more importantly, politically, when neither desire is achieved? I think you head towards stagnation. 
so I, I look, I, I don't think this is a Chinese issue. I think this is an everyone issue. I mean, what political system wants to deliver, wants to cut down on non-productive growth through cutting down on on uh, non-performing loans? I mean, it's a very hard thing to do. You've got a problem in Japan. You've got a problem in the United States. You've got a problem in Europe. So the answer is, is that we are heading as a global society, as well as uh, in China, uh, for a situation where you cannot just pull back and deleverage and cut growth down because then you're going to have all kinds of societal impacts on 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 uh, employment being just the most obvious one. So I, I think that there is no fix. Exactly right. There is no elixir on this. What you have to do is is use what 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 opportunities you have uh, to 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 make a dent in this. So right now. China's in a very good situation. You've got capital flowing in. This is the time it should take advantage of to cut down to cut down stimulus, which it says it's going to do, and to to make the structural shifts now. Because if the world sort of deep, you know, double dips into some some uh, financial crisis, either because of COVID or because of the next thing, then there will not be the opportunity to make these structural shifts. So it's imperative that China and also the United States and everybody else who's not going to do it view these as opportune times to make structural changes. And, and will they do it? I'm not optimistic, but I'm not optimistic about anybody doing it. Yeah, I th- uh, we're going to have to leave it on that note. Uh, let's see what happens. And, you know, let's not leave it another 11 months before we go, uh, you know, uh, for our, our next meeting. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to, to get your point of view. Once we actually get to the other side of the vaccine, Hopefully that's going to be in the next uh, few months. Let's uh, let's have another conversation at that point in time. Let's do it. All right, Leland, Leland Miller. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.